How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Happy Tuesday, my friends. Welcome to the Liz Wheeler Show. You know, I changed this show like two minutes before we went on air because I had a new thought about the topic that I want to talk about with you today. What I want to talk about is... China's president for life, the man who continues to get elected, even though he's supposed to be term limited, but he's not anymore because he said so. Xi Jinping went to Moscow to visit Vladimir Putin. In fact, he had dinner at the Kremlin, it was reported. Putin hosted him for dinner. And they greeted each other in this really weird, creepy, buddy-buddy way. Like, hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Like, these two countries don't have a long history of hating each other, which they do, China and Russia dislike each other to the extreme, um, which should cause all of us, our red flags, to go, well, wait a second, why all of a sudden are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin pretending to be friends when they have spent their entire lives, this entire modern history of their nations, hating each other? Um, This is one of the things that Vladimir Putin said to Xi Jinping when Xi arrived. I want to read it to you. He said, we will discuss your initiative. He's talking about this so-called peace peace plan, or this peace uh, peace plan that Xi Jinping was bringing, your initiative that we highly respect, our cooperation, meaning China and Russia, in the international arena undoubtedly helps strengthen the basic principles of our global order and multipolarity. And Vladimir Putin's spokespeople said that the two, Xi Jinping and Putin, are going to discuss a, quote, comprehensive partnership and strategic cooperation, which sounds like a lot of euphemisms, right? What What does comprehensive partnership mean? strategic cooperation on what? What do you mean by this, this, the principles, the basic principles of world order? These are all vague phrases that are used to camouflage something that I want to talk about with you. But first I want to deviate for a second because right before we came on air, I was thinking about the idea of an existential threat. An existential threat is something that threatens your very existence. That's why the word existential you know, exist is a derivative of existential or existential is built off the word exist. So when we say, for example, that the boycott, divest, and sanction, the BDS movement is an existential threat to Israel, it's because it would cause Israel to not exist anymore. It's not just something that would be economically hard for them. It's not just something that is anti-Semitic and therefore hateful and wrong, immoral in nature. It's something that would, that would actually squeeze the life out of the state of Israel. Similarly, we talk often here in the United States, we haven't faced existential threats. We haven't faced our own mortality as a country in a really long time. We oftentimes feel very invincible because for the, certainly for our entire lives, but for the whole course of modern American history, we have been virtually invincible. We have since, since at least World War II, probably even before World War II, we have been the, the world superpower. We've had the largest military, the strongest military, the largest economy, the strongest economy. We've been the world's boss. In fact, our internal discussions in the United States are oftentimes related to, well, we're so powerful that let's make sure that we're not acting like the world's policeman. Let's make sure that we're not being too bossy of, of nations around the world, that we're not telling them what to do just because we can. All with this like underlying implicit recognition that we can 
actually boss anyone around in the world that we want because we are that strong. We're that strong militarily. We are that strong economically. And we are that strong morally. We are actually correct. So I was thinking about this idea of an existential threat and how now in our country, our modern country, this, this, and probably even within the last 10 years, conservatives, you and I have, I hate to use the word awakened to this because I don't want to sound like I'm talking about wokeness, which I'm not, but we've awakened to these new existential threats that we face from within our own country. And that's what we talk about when we talk about an existential threat. We talk about wokeism being an existential threat, wokeism being this this colloquial term that we use to describe Marxism, neo-Marxism. You know, we talk about how critical race theory is an existential threat to our country because it propagates this, this racial superiority, racial inferiority, this poisonous ideology that will cause a racial divide in our nation to the point where it will actually divide our nation. It could cause a, a civil war, not just racial tensions. We talk about queer theory being an existential threat to our nation because it poses an existential threat to the children that it is destroying, right? So all of these these different things, I mean, we have ESG. I consider ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics that serve as this social credit score system for businesses that if they don't score high enough on this, this system, on, in, in, according to these standards, and these standards are all woke standards, like how, how much green energy to use, and do you pay for abortions for your, for your employees? Do you bust them out of state if you happen to live in a red state? Do you, uh, do you implement DEI practices in your, in your corporation? If businesses don't score high enough on this, then they're downgraded on the ESG scale. If they have low scores on the ESG scale, potentially they will be denied access to the market because even though we ostensibly live in a free market, the biggest financial institutions and banking institutions in our nation, they're the ones that control business loans. So if you're a small business and you need, and you need money to start, you need that, that seed money, then you apply for a loan. These big banking institutions are the ones that typically give you that loan. But if you score too low on the ESG writing, these big banking institutions are creating a scenario, creating an environment in our country where they're going to deny you that loan because you are not a good investment, quote unquote, because your ESG score is too low. So I consider ESG to be another existential threat to our country. I mean, I get the, the whole list here. I mean, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, this idea that we should tear down the rule of law, defund the police, abolish the police. These are all existential threats to America. It's not just a threat to our conservative values. It's not just a threat to our neighborhoods, although it also is. It's not just a threat to to civil society, it is a threat to our very nation. The border crisis is an existential threat. If you don't have a border, you are, you are threatening the very existence of our country. The deep state is an existential threat to our country. If we have unelected bureaucrats who are accountable to nobody and can't be fired, and they're making rules based on the legislative branch deferring their legislative authority to the executive branch agencies filled with these bureaucrats. They're making rules for our lives that violate the constitution. That's an existential threat to our nation. And so I'm sitting here, as I said, these are the thoughts filling my head two minutes before the show starts. I'm sitting here thinking about this idea of an existential threat. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we as Americans are completely unaccustomed to facing an existential threat from outside of our outside of our country. The last time that we got even a taste of that, the taste of the idea of what an existential threat might feel like was September 11th of 2001, when 
we were attacked by Al-Qaeda when those jetliners were hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists and we suffered this this act of war in our nation. And we all wondered for a second, oh my goodness, are we going to have a war on American soil? And it, it became very clear very quickly that no, we weren't, that it was a terror attack. It was not, it was not an act of war propagated by a state actor. Um, and before that, it had been so long, it had maybe been since the, I guess the Soviet Union and the the race for nuclear weapons. And before that, you know, well, I guess coupled with that, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was the last time that we really felt the question lurking in our minds, are we under existential threat from without, from outside of the borders of our country? And I think, my friends, that we are facing for the first time in, in our generation or for the first time since perhaps September 11th, and that's just a maybe, we are facing an existential threat from outside of our country. And the scary part is the majority of citizens in our nation don't realize that we are facing this existential threat. That's what I wanna talk to you about today. So let's get to it. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. So... This is kind of philosophical, but also it gets not philosophical, it gets practical, it gets very real and very scary very quickly here. When you're talking about, or thinking, as I, as I have been, I, I've been in preparation for the show, and especially just a couple minutes before we went on air, I'm thinking about this idea of an existential threat and how existential threats for so long have been from within our own country. We've been the world's superpower for so long and by such a significant margin that we feel invincible. It's just normal. This is just what we're used to. It's what we are, both in our own experience, but it's also part of our the fabric of our nation. It's part of our national uh, unity, is that we are America. America is exceptional. America is the world's superpower. Everyone does what America says. America is just generous in the fact that we're not an imperialist country. But honestly, if we wanted to be, for a long time, we could have been. We could have conquered half the world if we wanted to. We just chose not to because we're nice people. We're good people. We were just like, we just want to prosper here and we're going to export some of our prosperity to you, but we're not going to conquer you because that's not what we do. Okay. So now for the first time in a generation, we're facing an existential threat from outside of our country. And I don't think the vast majority of people in our country realize that what's happening in Ukraine is an existential threat to the United States. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I want to be very clear. 
I am not talking, I am not propagating the narrative that Republicans like Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell propagate, where McConnell says, what's happening in Ukraine or our support, our military support of Ukraine is the most important issue of our time. That's not true. That's, I mean, it shows how out of touch Mitch McConnell is. It shows where his priorities lie. That is not what I'm talking about. I am not interested in defending Ukraine because they are some sort of, um, they are some sort of example of a good democracy. No, they're not. They're one of the most corrupt nations around the world, and they have very corrupt ties to the United States, especially through the Biden family. We all know all of that. We know Hunter Biden was paid a ton of money to be on the board of an energy company in Ukraine. Conveniently, when his father was vice president and Ukraine wanted something from his father, oh, well, coincidental. No, Ukraine is... is used by corrupt politicians and corrupt business people in the United States is essentially a place for money laundering. And Ukraine thinks that they can squeeze more money out of the United States because they can hold that over our head. And to a certain extent, that's true, right? Let me see. We just gave $350 million more to Ukraine. $350 million. It's hard for me to even fathom what that amount of money looks like if you were to put it all in one stack. Like how many planes, how many pallets of cash? Remember when Obama sent those pallets of cash to Iran? Unmarked planes carrying unmarked bills and he just sent the cash, like the hard cash, the bills. Imagine that being sent to Ukraine, $350 million. That's just one of the payments. There've been like dozens of payments that the US government, the Congress and Biden unilaterally has given to Ukraine. We've given them something like $35 billion so far. For what? For what? We've given them some of our best military equipment. We've, we've, we've been fighting a proxy war against Russia is what we've been doing. This is, this is what we've been doing is we've been fighting this proxy war against Russia. And there's a lot of reasons that a lot of conservatives have opposed the war in Ukraine. And these are good reasons and these are valid reasons. Um, some of them have to do with just the money itself that I'm talking about, this unlimited amount of money that just flows directly to Zelensky. And there's no audit. We don't know what he's actually spending this money on. Some of it is, some of it is earmarked. We send it in the form of quote unquote military aid, which sometimes is just cash and sometimes is our military equipment that we're essentially giving them for free. And we just say like, this is the this is how much the equipment we gave you is worth. Therefore, when we say we're sending money, it's really we're sending them goods, goods that are worth that amount of money. But there's been no audit. We have no idea if this is being used corruptly. Given who Zelensky is, given what Ukraine is, I think it's undoubted. It's, un, it's simply undoubtedly being used for corrupt purposes. Of course it is. And a lot of conservatives don't want this blank check being written to Ukraine as <laughs> because it's it's awful, especially when we can't even secure our own border. I mean, this what's happening in Ukraine is essentially a border dispute between Ukraine and Russia. And Vladimir Putin is wrong to invade. There's not very many people that that are it, that are defending Vladimir Putin. It's wrong. He's an imperialist because I mean, he's a former KGB agent. He's a former Soviet. He, uh, he's never disavowed that ideology. There's no reason to think that he's anything other than a, basically a, a Bolshevik imperialist. That's what, how he behaves. And that's wrong. It's immoral. He shouldn't do that. However, it's still, even if that's what Putin is, it's still a dispute over a border in Ukraine. And we can't even secure our own border. We claim we don't have the money to do that. And yet we're trying to secure the border of Ukraine against an invasion by Russia. 
That doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of conservatives who oppose the Ukraine war because of that, and that's a very good reason. Also, this amount of money, as, as when I'm talking about these planes, like this, this picturing in my head, how much money this is, how much cash this is, it's also impossible for me not to compare that amount of money to what it could do here domestically in the United States. When governors across the country locked down our economy in the name of COVID and people lost their life savings, they lost their livelihoods, their businesses were ruined or closed down forever, this amount of money belongs to the American people. This amount of money could save the American people from the devastation that we have experienced. The, the inflation that we are suffering in the United States right now is mostly due to Joe Biden printing this money to give to Ukraine. And by printing that money, it devalues our currency, which causes inflation, which costs us more, which means that essentially we are paying, you and I are paying out of our pocket to give this money to Zelensky and Ukraine while the US government is preventing us or prevented us from pursuing our livelihoods, making a living and making money. It's grotesque. And many people rightfully oppose the war in Ukraine on those grounds. We also don't want more endless wars. How many endless wars have we been involved in that we haven't won decisively because of our own choices? The anniversary of the Iraq war just passed 20 years in Iraq. We could have won that war. We should have won that war. No, let me pause, let me, let me go back. We shouldn't have entered that war. That war was based on faulty intelligence and political interests. But once we were there, we could have won that war, but we didn't because of domestic policies, politics here at home that essentially prohibited the military from being able to decisively end that war. In fact, I read James Mattis's book after it came out, and I read it because I wanted to hear what he had to say about Trump, but one of the most interesting parts of James Mattis's, General Mattis's book, was talking about being in Iraq during the time when Iraq should have been completed, when the war in Iraq should have been won, and how Obama and Joe Biden specifically stopped the U.S. military from being able to win the war in Iraq. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The American people don't want that again. We saw our sons and our brothers and our husbands and our dads, people that we grew up with and went to school with. We saw young men across our country die in Iraq while politicians didn't give them the tools that they needed to actually win that war. We saw so much money be spent on Iraq that, again, we had the same reaction when all this money was being spent on Iraq and not spent on us when there wasn't, when victory was never the goal in the eyes of the politicians that were, that were orchestrating Iraq here. People oppose the war in Ukraine on these same grounds. We don't want any more endless wars. Also, 
what's happening in Ukraine, it's perfectly fine to say that it's a lose-lose. It's perfectly fine to say, well, it really sucks that Vladimir Putin is probably not going to stop his invasion. He's not going to agree to any peace deal unless Ukraine gives away some of their sovereignty. That sucks. That's bad. I don't like that. I wish Ukraine didn't have to give away some of their sovereignty. They're going to have to, though. Any, any realist, you can pretend that there's some outcome that some utopian outcome where Ukraine emerges victorious, Ukraine does not have to give away any of their geography and Russia backs off. But let me tell you, if you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you because that's never gonna happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because we shouldn't have been in this position in the first place. We shouldn't have been in a position in the world where Vladimir Putin felt that he could, that he could invade Ukraine without suffering serious ramifications for that. We shouldn't have been in a position where Joe Biden's administration was so weak that he didn't preemptively stop Vladimir Putin before this actually happened. Because once it happened, Vladimir Putin isn't, wasn't going to stop. He wasn't going to back down just because people condemned him, just because senators issued tweets. No. What's going to have to happen is Ukraine is going to have to give away some of their, their geography. They're going to have to sacrifice some of their sovereignty because they're not going to win. They're not going to win this war in the way that Zelensky wants to convince the world as he's begging for more money that their money will help him win. It's not going to happen. But we're in this lose-lose situation where we have to acknowledge that, no, none of the outcomes are ideal, but since previously enacted political policies in Ukraine as well, by the way, with the, if the Obama administration had not essentially staged a coup in Ukraine, deposed their president and paved the way for Zelensky to be president, paved the way for that increasing corruption, then we wouldn't be in this position in the first place. This is why you take actions before the bad thing happens to prevent the bad thing from happening because once the bad thing happens, you can't roll it back and it's very hard to stop it. It's kind of like healthcare. You want to prevent disease because once you get disease, it's harder to cure it than it is to prevent it from happening in the first place. A lot of people oppose the war in Ukraine on that ground because, you know, it's a lose-lose. Just end it. Just get out of there. Um, Zelensky is also just a fraud. I personally oppose the war in Iraq or the war in Ukraine for all of these reasons. But one of the ones that motivates me the most is just Zelensky is such a fraud. He's such an actor. I mean, he uses a green screen to make it look like he's walking through a war zone to make these theatrical productions to beg the world for money. He has pulled the wool over the entire, the eyes of the entire globe and we're the ones paying for it. We, our paychecks are paying for this. And Zelensky's just an actor that used to prance around naked with other men in high heels. It's grotesque. It's grotesque. And then finally, of course, is the actual military reason what this is going to escalate into if we don't put a stop to it now. Okay, so then of course we have, what's essentially happening in Ukraine right now is it's a proxy war with Russia. We are fighting a proxy war with Russia. We're just using Ukraine as this weird buffer. We are giving the money. We are giving the military equipment. We are training Ukrainian forces. And that's enabling them to carry on this war against Russia. If I'm Russia, if I'm Vladimir Putin, I sit there and think, well, I'm not really fighting Ukraine. I'm really fighting the United States. This is, and I, I don't just feel this way in this scenario. In Iraq, for example, since we're talking about Iraq, when Iranian General Soleimani would come in and he would uh, blow up our service members, I didn't blame Iraq. I blamed Iran because it was Iran that was doing that or Iran that was funding it. That's the same thing that we're doing, giving all this money and this military equipment to Ukraine. We are the ones fighting this proxy war. I don't want my husband, for example, 
to die in a proxy war with Russia over a border dispute in Ukraine. I don't want anybody to be vaporized by a nuclear weapon over a border dispute between Russia and Ukraine. Are you kidding me? This, and that's where this is heading. This is heading to nuclear war. This is heading to conventional war between NATO and Russia, between the United States and Russia. And people oppose the war in Ukraine on all these grounds. And all of this is perfectly valid. But this is not the number one reason to oppose the war in Ukraine. The number one reason, the bigger reason that this war must end is because of what's happening between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. This meeting between the two of them is unprecedented. This meeting where they are all buddy-buddy saying, oh, my friend, come to dinner. Let me dine with me at the Kremlin, is what Putin said to Xi Jinping. They're talking about strategic cooperation. They're talking about a world order. That should be our tip-off, those words, a world order. If Russia and China get together, then we face in our country for the very first time in our lifetimes an existential threat to America as the world's superpower as the most powerful nation in the world, we could be unseated. And if we, as America's, as we as the world's superpower, if America is unseated, that doesn't just impact us negatively. America as we know it ceases to exist and the ripple effects of that travel all around the world. People all across the globe will suffer and die if America is not the world's superpower. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As the nation gears up for another election season, tune to the first TV for the best coverage on television. Get an exclusive inside look at the American political machine with Sean Spicer at 7. Unmatched analysis and historical perspective from Bill O'Reilly at 8. Then a bold, unapologetic take from Jesse Kelly at 9. It's must-see TV in primetime every night on The First TV. Watch The First on DirecTV Channel 347, Uverse Channel 1220, or DirecTV Stream. Russia can't do this on their own. They can't, they can't knock us off of our position as world superpower on their own, and China can't either, at least not right now. But if Russia and China get together, and remember the history here, Russia and China hate each other. Even during, even during the Cold War, or before that, before the Cold War, during the sort of proliferation of global communism, Russia and China despised each other. They embraced different types of communism, Marxism, you know, whether it was Leninism and socialism in the Soviet Union, whether it was, um, whether it was Maoism in communist China, it was the same philosophy underpinned it, but they could never team up. Even as they were both individually trying to spread communism around the globe, they couldn't team up because they loathed each other. It is ingrained into their cultures and into their politics to dislike each other. So the fact that Xi Jinping, the president of China, the head of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin, a former KGB agent, they both were alive and active in politics during these decades of their countries hating each other. The fact that they're dining together, calling each other friends and talking about cooperation should not only startle us, 
in the West, it should make us face our own mortality. This is an existential threat to our nation because the war in Ukraine is poised right now to, t- to change, to alter the makeup of the world order that has existed since the end of World War II. If you combine China's economy, the amount of money that they have, and I guess the amount of money includes their resources like their people, and then you include Russia's geography and all of the energy resources that they have, and you combine those two things, then you have yourself a more powerful entity than the United States of America with more capacity to control more people, with more influence over more countries, with more strategic placement around the globe than even the United States and her allies. And if you have China and Russia becoming allied with each other, the reason that they're doing that is not because they like each other. It's because they need each other because they share one goal in common. And that is knocking the United States off of the pedestal as the world's superpower. And if they do that, it's not just because they want to be the most prosperous nation. It's not good faith competition. It's because they're imperialist in their own way and they want control. Vladimir Putin wants control of territories that are former Soviet territories. Xi Jinping wants ideological control. He wants, he wants ideological control that he will that he will use economic control to exact ideological control, just like we talk about ESG. ESG is basically a copycat of the Chinese Communist Party's social credit score, where they use their social credit score to control their so-called private industry. Sure, private people, private citizens can own businesses. It's not like the government owns everything in China, but the government controls everything through their social credit score system. If you don't adhere to those those metrics, the, the communist metrics, how you are a good communist, then the Chinese Communist Party stops you from doing business. It's, it's a means, this, this economic control is a means to ideological control. And if China and Russia get together, then they leverage this against the United States and suddenly we are not as invincible as we felt for our entire lives. Suddenly we aren't in a position where we just feel like we have moral superiority because we could be imperialists, we could conquer your nation, we could conquer half the world, but we don't, we choose not to because we're the good guys. Suddenly we don't have that control anymore. We don't even have that capacity, it's not an option. And suddenly our most powerful weapon, which is actually our economy and not our military, isn't the most powerful weapon anymore because we use our economy as a negotiating tool when we want other countries to do what we want them to do. We say, well, if you don't, we're going to impose these types of economic penalties on you. And other countries that rely on the American economy to sustain their own economy have to cave to what America wants because if they don't, then we we cut off their access to our economy and that's an existential threat to their people. America does that all the time, as we should. That's, That's the appropriate use of a strong economy as a tool of international negotiation. It, it prevents us actually from having to use our military. It should be the first, the first line of negotiation, and it often is. But if we are no longer the strongest economy and we make these demands from other countries or these demands to other countries that they behave a certain way or else we're going to cut them off from the American economy, and at the same time, 
China and Russia allied together make a, make a similar threat and say, actually, we're gonna cut you off from our economy if you don't do what we want instead of the United States, then the obvious choice for that country is going to be to cut off whichever, whichever option is a lesser part, a lesser impact on their lesser negative impact, lesser harm on their economy, and it's going to be the United States. The United States is going to be the nation that's ignored. Our demands are no longer going to be met. Our, our allies might stick with us, sure, as long as they can, the ones who are our moral allies, but we have a lot of practical allies around the world. Allies that don't agree with us ideologically, they, don't, they maybe don't even like us. Um, countries that we don't endorse what they're doing, but we are strategically partnered with them or strategically allied with them simply because we don't want them to be partnered with the other side. But at whatever point it becomes more advantageous for them to be partnered with the other side, why wouldn't they do it if they're not morally and ideologically aligned with us? All they need is a better offer, but right now we are the ones who can make them the, the far and away best offer. But what happens if suddenly we're not making them the best offer. So what's our alternative then? If we're facing this existential threat because of the Ukraine war, because we are funding the Ukraine war, and Russia considers that to be fighting the United States, just using Ukraine as a proxy, which is a completely rational and logical way for Russia to look at this, and they're angry about that, and meanwhile, China has wanted for decades, this is part of like their 100-year plan, to unseat America as a global superpower. They're both so angry at the United States that even though they're angry at each other, they're less angry at each other right now than they are at the United States. They decide to get together. Suddenly, they become the world's superpower, this, this potential allyship between China and Russia. What can we possibly do then? If we can no longer use the size and breadth and prosperity of our economy, the strength of our economy against them, we're left just with just the option of what, a conventional war against the two of them? I'm not even confident that we would win. If Russia and China were fighting a conventional war against the United States, particularly when the United States, our military has been infiltrated by wokeism, with all due respect to the men and women who serve and sacrifice for our nation in uniform, I'm just not sure that we would defeat Russia and China together in a conventional war. No one wants that anyway, because there would be mass death. It would be the end of the world, which is why we've done everything in our power since Russia and China became such powerful nations to avoid war. It's why we had the Cold War. We were trying to avoid a conventional war with Russia. It's why we use our economy against China, because we don't want to go to war with the Chinese. But what other option would we have if the strength of our economy is completely neutered? Like I said, it's kind of startling to sit here and think, okay, well, we felt invincible. The existential threats that we have considered or that we fight against in our country that face our country are oftentimes internal threats, neo-Marxist threats, this institutional capture that we face in this country. And that's all valid, that's true, that's real. But for the first time in our generation, we're facing an existential threat from outside of our country. This Ukraine war is pushing two countries into bed with each other that we have previously counted on. We've taken for granted the fact that they hate each other and they wouldn't ally with each other. But what if they do? What if this meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin is the beginning of a China-Russia romance? Where does that leave us? By the way, this is also why all of the globalists and I'm not talking about just in Russia and in China, but all of the globalists in our own country, in the United States government, in the United States Congress, all of the 
political activist donor class, the World Economic Forum types, the UN types, why they're all wearing their Ukraine pins and their Ukraine scarves and putting Ukraine flags in their bios and online on Twitter and flying the Ukrainian flag. The reason that they're doing this is because they're not opposed to the idea of deposing the United States as the world superpower. That's what they want. They're the same people that are pushing the internal existential threats on our nation, whether it's ESG or DEI or critical race theory or queer theory. They're the same people that are propagating those threats because they want to destroy the United States. They want to destroy what we are. They're trying to destroy our culture first so that they can then move to destroying our governmental institutions. But the ultimate goal is to ruin our country, to obliterate it. So of course they are supporting the war in Ukraine, which is creating a situation where the inevitable outcome is that Russia allies with China, China allies with Russia, and they together have obliterated our position on the world stage. They fundamentally changed the world order. That's what all of these globalists have wanted all along. They want a new world order. They use that phrase themselves. They tell us what they're trying to do. It's just hard for us to believe because it's so awful. It's so out of the realm of what we're used to that it's hard for us to even fathom. It's hard for us to even imagine. But they've been telling us what they want to do. They want these Chinese-style social credit score systems here in the United States. That's, that's what ESG is. They want Maoist struggle sessions where you face this re-education if you don't repeat if you don't repeat communist philosophy, that's what DEI is, that's what diversity training is, it's what these, these mandatory sessions where you're indoctrinated with anti-racism, that's what that is. They want this for the United States. They've been trying to do it ex internally, but when they see the possibility externally, of course they latch onto this. They want the, the globalists that hate us want complete control over us. They, rem remember how we always talk about this is, Think of globalists as a cult. There's three levels in this cult, right? The, the bottom level are the water carriers. They're kind of the silly people who have bought into the narratives. Like they use neo-pronouns. They pretend they're anti-racist, but they don't understand the ideology of the thing. They're kind of just duped. They're in a sense victims of the cult too, even if they're the most annoying people because they're the repeaters. They're the people on social media, but they don't really understand that they've bought into this Marxist idea. Then you have this mid-level, these people like, maybe like Robin DeAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi, who fully understand the ideology that they've bought into. They know they're Marxists. In fact, like the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, like Patrice Kohler, she and Alicia Garza, admit that they are Marxists. They say, we are trained Marxists. They know they're Marxists. They've just bought into it ideologically. They are true believers and they know what they're believing in. And then you have this, this inner circle in the cult. They're the actual leaders of the cult. And those are the people with the money. Those are the people like the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and George Soros. And they're not actually probably ideologically Marxist. They probably don't buy into actual communism. They just know that it's a perfect tool, a medium to force a population in, under their control. So Bill Gates, for example, wants us all to take his terrible vaccines. He wants to uh, re-engineer. He wants to socially engineer everyone. He wants to make us eat his fake meat and his crickets. And he wants us never to drive a car again as he's totally fine taking his private jet around the world. George Soros wants everyone's borders to be open. He wants this bananas idea of an open society. He wants no criminal justice system because he doesn't think that that's the way that you run the world. Like these people want control over our lives. These people want to control our every move, our every word, our every thought, our every belief. They want every cell in our body to defer to them. 
That's it. They want control. And um, they're evil. They're completely evil, which is why they're totally okay with giving all of our money to the war in Ukraine that looks to Putin like the United States is fighting a proxy war, with, which throws him in bed with Xi Jinping because they both so desperately hate, despise the United States and want to unseat us as the world superpower. There's a bottom line here, though. The bottom line is the American political class, who right now are very supportive of the war in Ukraine, the American political class can save us. I know, I hate even saying that phrase because who wants to rely on the horrible, flaky, squishy American political class who doesn't have any fire in their belly to fight the fight, who oftentimes are corrupt, they're the, the people we're fighting against, even as they're supposed to be representing us, they have the power to stop this. Because the money we're giving to Ukraine has no strings attached. We're not telling Zelensky, sure, we'll give you X, Y, and Z. We'll give you so much money. We'll give you so much rounds of ammunition. We'll give you tanks or whatever. But you then have to broker a peace deal. We'll give you this, these weapons to defend your people so that while you broker a peace deal, you're not losing more territory. We have the power to do that. All we have to do is say, hey, Zelensky, that, that, that wheelbarrow of money that we're bringing toward you, we're just gonna stop right here until you've agreed to our conditions. And Zelensky wouldn't have any choice but to agree because he needs that money. We're the one funding his war. We're funding his country. We're paying the pensions of Ukrainians, which is absurd. And yet you have to wonder why the American political class doesn't do this. Why doesn't Biden force Zelensky to do what the United States wants him to do? Because right now we are still the world superpower. We are still the economic powerhouse. We are the most influential nation in the world. And we can make any country do anything that we want because all we have to do is threaten them economically and they will count out to what we say. Why don't we use that? Why is Kamala Harris praising Zelensky? Why are Republicans like Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell wanting to fight this fight instead of wanting to end this war? When we have the power to end this war and said they want to propagate it, and by propagating it, they want they're literally funding, giving money to someone that wants to kill our country, that poses an existential threat to our country. I'm sorry if Ukraine loses territory over this. Vladimir Putin is wrong to invade, but I don't care if Ukraine loses half their country, if that's what it takes to prevent the destruction of the United States of America. When we talk about the strategic interest of America, of the United States in Ukraine? Why are no politicians talking about the strategic interests of preserving our position in the world order, our position as the world superpower? That is the primary interest of the United States government. And yet the people running the United States government are morally and practically failing us in that regard and propagating what for the first time in our lifetime has become an existential threat to our country that we are facing from outside of our own borders, yet funded by people within. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show.
with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.